Hey, what's going on, everyone? It's Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor, the YouTube channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we are going to do that again through a another sermon review welcome if you've never been uh, to one of these videos we do sermon reviews every single week and the sermon reviews are based on the pastors that you send in so a lot of these pastors you haven't heard of but that's not really the point right we're not talking about the best pastor the worst pastor we're just talking about the presentation of the pastor and using the pastor as the example uh, sort of in front of us so we can walk through the sermon. So this week, we're going to walk through a sermon from a pastor at Potential Church asking the same three questions that we ask every single week when we do the sermon reviews. One, do they use the text? Two, do they exegete the text using uh, context and culture to bring out application? And three, do they preach the gospel? If you're interested in doing this at your uh, when you listen to sermons, whether it be online or at home, we have a downloadable PDF. Uh, oh no, here, let me see if I can put it on the screen. Can you see that? You can't. Oh no. Well, anyway, we have a downloadable PDF in the description below that you can download that will walk you or give you a template rather to walk through sermons that you watch in the same way that I walk through them here just covers basic things, the church, the speaker, the main text, little notes, and then a checkoff list at the bottom to go through the three things that we look at. I've broken it down to four, but you'll see it when you download it. Check that out in the link below. Also in the links below are going to be one, the link for this full length sermon without my commentary, because clearly you might want to watch it without me breaking in the whole time. Also, there's going to be some parts we have to cut out of this because he shows movie clips and I ain't about that getting copyrighted sort of situation. So you'll see where those get cut. And then thirdly, uh, there's some links down below to support what uh, I do here on this channel, as well as like links to the podcast. So the audio version, all that there's, there's a bunch of links just, just check those out. So let's go ahead and jump in. Oh, hold on real quick here. I've got to see. I'm not even ready for this, man. I ain't even ready for it. All right. So let's jump into the, uh, the, this, the, uh, review screen over here, go ahead and hop into potential church. We're starting at the one minute, 22 second mark because he's done some announcements. Apparently they're going to watch the new Santa Claus on Netflix together as a church. So whatever, I'm not commenting on that. Um, and then, like I said, you will see this sort of cut in and out as he shows clips because he shows two very long clips from the original Santa Claus movie with Tim Allen here at the beginning, and those will be cut out. So this is where it's sort of the edited, unedited version. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that, that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's go ahead and jump into this review now. Uh, let's go. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wished you were somebody else? I mean, have you ever been going through, I guess, a, a difficult time and you're like, man, wouldn't it be good to look like that, to live there, to drive that car? Uh, I know for me, you know, and as a pastor, it's normally when, you know, things are kind of going not the way I would hope that they would go. You know, you're kind of struggling a little bit and things aren't going right. And you're kind of like, oh, you know, it must be. And isn't there a tendency that when you want to be somebody else, you see not on the inside, it's on the outside. Right? So you see the house they live in, the car they drive, the clothes they wear, the, the relationships they have. And those are the things that you desire. So as a pastor, you sit back and you think, man, things aren't going very well. Maybe I need to change, change something about the way I look. Right? And... Years ago, when things didn't go well, there was a pastor out in Southern California by the name of Dr. Rick Warren, and he was known to wear Hawaiian shirts. 
Now, there's a picture of him up there. So you know what I did is I went out and I got me a Hawaiian shirt. And I put the sucker on and nothing changed except for I wore a Hawaiian shirt. That, that wasn't it. So then I thought, you know, maybe it's not Rick Warren I need to be. There's another pastor in Houston, Texas. He has a giant church and he's all over the TV screen. Maybe you've heard of him, Joel Osteen. And so I went out, and I decided I needed a suit and tie. I just couldn't get the smile down, though. I, I'm just not that happy of a person. So it, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't quite work out. You know, when I was in fifth grade, all the girls loved Scott Bayo. He was in Happy Days. His name was Chachi. Some of you are too young to even know, but that's what he looked like, and everybody would go, ah. And so I would go home, and I would pray that God would make me look like Scott Bayo. And every morning, I would get up, and I'd run to the bathroom, and mm, it never happened. It, it never changed. Well, you know, the Santa Claus movie are really about a change in identity. All right, so he starts off, and I think it's very important to recognize that, like, he gives three examples of different times where he uh, wanted to be someone else because the situation in his life in particular wasn't going the way he wanted it. So he starts off with this hook, right, this this hook of, hey, do you ever want to be somebody else? Has there ever been a time where you're not happy with who you are, so you want to become someone else? And he gives examples of three instances in which he wanted to become someone else, and he sort of, you know, names off Rick Warren, Joel Olsen, which he could have had way better examples of pastors he wanted to be, but that's beside the point. And that's how he enters into this sermon, saying, hey, have you ever wanted to be somebody else? Well, I have, and here are some examples. So now he's sort of got the congregation, because we always like to talk about, like, you know, the intros. What do those look like? Does the intro with scripture? Does the intro with the story? Does the intro with some sort of, um, you know, some introduction about who he is? Well, this is his church, so clearly he's not going to intro about who he is. So that leaves us with the two other options, right? So he goes with the story of saying, hey, trying to relate to people. Have you ever wanted to be somebody else in your life because your life wasn't going well? Well, I definitely have. Um, I do think this shows either, uh, uh, this just shows that he has a, probably a personality tendency to uh, try to get affirmation from others, which is concerning, especially within a pastor. Not saying that Troy it's, is a, I'm just saying that you can usually tell if somebody's always trying to sort of mold themselves to be people that, you know, somebody that people like, they're not really secure in who they are. So this is sort of how this sermon starts. Are you not secure in who you are? Well, I haven't been secure in who I am before. I've tried to be these other people. It didn't work for me. And this is sort of what happens in the Santa Claus movie, he says. So now we're all sort of hooked in um, to that question. So the question then that we're assuming is going to be answered is... Well, okay, what do we do about that then? What does Scripture have to say about that, about wanting to be somebody else? Right. Tim Allen, who's the star of the show, becomes Santa Claus. You remember how it starts? If you have your children in here, you might want to put their hands, your hands over their ears, okay? Really, you ought to take them to the children's ministry. But if they're in here, because Scott Calvin is who he plays in the movie, kills Santa. Let's watch. All right, so that was one of the things we had to cut out of the the sermon there. So he just showed a clip of from from the uh, Santa Claus movie about where uh, 
Santa Claus falls off the roof, and Tim Allen puts on the suit. Okay, so let's get back into the sermon. So as you know, Tim Allen puts on the suit, right? And he gets in the sleigh. But what he doesn't realize is by putting on the suit, he's made a commitment until he gets back to the North Pole. And when he gets there, Bernard, the head elf, lets him know just what kind of commitment he made by putting on the suit. Here it is. Okay, so now I've cut out that second part, and we're getting back into the sermon part. He just went through the scene, if you know the Santa Claus movie, where Bernard the Elf describes the entire situation on the card to Scott Calvin, which is played by Tim Allen. And now we're back into the sermon. Okay, here we go. Right, he finds out that he has committed to a change in identity. I put it in the outline. If you want to follow along, you can on, uh, on the app. But here's what it says. It says, in putting on the suit and entering the sleigh, the wearer waves any and all rights to any previous identity, real or implied, and fully accepts the duties and responsibilities of Santa Claus. A change in identity. Well, that not only happens in the Santa Claus, it also happens in what we're going to talk about, the Christmas Clause. Okay, so I just want to start off then, right? So we've, we've went into the intro. He's basically introed into his sermon now using the movie called The Santa Claus. Um, we haven't used any scripture yet. And my, like, so when we enter into this, now I have watched the sermon all the way through before, but when we enter into this, assuming that I had it, if, I, if you and I are just sitting in the, you know, the congregation, my biggest concern now is that we've spent, you know, the first 10 minutes of this sermon talking about the Santa Claus movie and using the movie as some sort of this, you know, intro into the scripture that we're going to talk about. I, I'm not saying it's, you know, the worst thing you can do. I mean, a lot of churches do these at the movie series, which I personally disagree with, but I think they can still in a very warped way perhaps work, but I think it's a very long shot in doing so. But I want to demonstrate in this sermon how that, you know, the, the, the pitfalls of that. I think we're going to see them, right? So he's introed in using the Santa Claus movie to demonstrate a new, putting on a new identity. Now, here's the thing. Like, I'm not going to talk through it through this sermon review. There's going to be, an, uh, like I said last week, there's going to be an extra video. It'll be linked in the description or at the end of the sermon where we actually walk through the scriptures that he uses and how I think they could have been used better. But what we're going to do in this particular sermon is take note of the scriptures he does use in connecting what he says, you know, this new identity that we put on or that people put on like the new identity that Scott Calvin puts on in the movie. So let, let's let him get into his scripture now, now that we sort of introed into the movie for the first 10 minutes of the sermon. You and I have an opportunity this Christmas as a Christ follower to put on, you might say, a new identity. In Luke chapter 2, the beginning of the Christmas clause with this angels, they show up and they say, what, we got good news, it'll bring great joy. Now, a couple things real quick. One, whenever a pastor mentions, you know, where they want to, where they were, where they're reading from, definitely go there. Secondly, if you are a video viewer and you're not listening to the audio version, what we have on the screen right now is a, um, is a QR code that says engage with the service, download our app for teaching notes and more. Um, just as an aside, if you are a church 
and uh, you have the opportunity to maybe you don't have an app but you do have maybe like a, a website or a, you, know, you can use QR codes for a number of different things just even a downloadable PDF is awesome I could technically do that with the sermon review note you know I could do that but uh, that's what they do on, they have that on screen right now, which I think is very helpful to get the people in the pew engaged with the service. So whether the service is good or not is irre irrelevant right now. What we're actually looking at is the reality that they have something that helps them engage with those that are there. And I think that's a great idea just as an aside totally to the sermon. So let's keep going and let him work through Luke chapter two. Hey, for all people. What is the good news that will bring great joy is that you and I have the opportunity to put on the suit and get a new identity. Now, I know it's probably hard to take me serious while I'm wearing the Santa suit, so let me take it off. But I want to read it to you. It's actually right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I put it in your outline. Okay, so here's one of the things that I wanted to point out, right? And I know I'm breaking in a ton, but just bear with me here. So he directs us to Luke chapter 2, to this, the Christmas story, but then he directs us to 2 Corinthians. So it's just sort of one of those things where you got to be on your toes here. And as a pastor, just be cognizant of what you're telling, where you're telling the congregation to go, especially if you're in a church that has their Bibles open and they're flipping to, you know, Luke chapter two. And then you're like, oh, that's not where I'm going. You got to go to second Corinthians. So I know it's a small thing, but I think it's an important thing when we're talking about, you know, helping your congregation follow along in the word, be clear in where you want them to go. Verse 17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person and the old life is gone and the new life has begun. A new identity. The, the Christmas clause gives us that kind of opportunity. So I want to talk about what's this new identity look like if we're willing or have the faith, you might say, to put on the God jersey. Well, there are a few, and let's go over them. The first thing is that in this new identity, I am completely accepted. Completely accepted. Who I am. Have you ever felt unaccepted? You ever been somewhere where you walked in and immediately you're like, I don't know if I belong here. When I was in high school, I played basketball. And in between high school and college, you know, you, you get recruited. And so they send letters, and coaches come and visit and watch your games. And then they have you come to the college, and you visit the college, and you see all the things, and they tell you how great they are. And eventually, you know, you go out on the court, and you kind of play with the guys who were there last year. Well, every time I went and visited a college, it always kind of felt the same, because I went to a small high school. I'm 6'4", which is... Every college basketball player is 6'4". It's a very common height in college basketball. And I'm of the persuasion that uh, people would assume I couldn't jump. And so every time I would walk onto that court, I felt like I have to prove myself here. I I'm not immediately accepted or immediately feel as if I belong. But when you and I put on the suit, and become who Christ has created us to be, we are completely accepted. Titus says it this way, Jesus treated us much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God and gave us the hope of eternal life, better than we deserve. 
See, you know what religion is? Religion is where we're trying to earn that acceptance. Religion is where we're hoping that we can be good enough or do enough so as to be accepted by God. But that's not the new identity that Christ gives us. It's not something we earn. It's something he gives, which is called grace. We are completely accepted because, well, I put it in your outline. First of all, I'm totally forgiven. Okay, so the first thing he talks about is being totally accepted. Now, he's working through the texture. Now, here, here's one of the things that we definitely want to look for and that you're definitely going to see in this sermon is that there is a lot of using single verses in order to make points here. So he used 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He doesn't read any of the context between 16 and 21, which is really this unfolding of how that happens, what that looks like, why that's important. Uh, he just says you're fully accepted. But even within the text, this... Um, this isn't quite what the text is even saying. So for, I just want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 real quick. So within the full context of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21, it says this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, we are reconciling the world. Uh, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us uh, with a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin uh, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, here's the thing, and we'll talk about this in the video that I make about verses afterwards. If he would have read that entire context, it would have fit with the entire sermon of this new identity. Like this last verse in 21, this whole great exchange, right? We'll talk about that in the video after, but this this speaks of this new identity we have in Christ, what Christ gives us, um, but we don't get any of that because we just use the one verse, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and talks about this fully ex this being fully accepted, but not explaining why that's important. Like, we're, we're assuming that the congregation understands why this this um, this new creation occurs, why it's even necessary. All he says, and he makes this differentiation between religion being something, you know, where we try to earn God's, you know, grace versus what Jesus brings us, which is this free offering of grace and this reconciliation to God. But we don't really unpack that, what that reconciliation is. And therefore, we're just left with this idea that he really stretches out of this thing, which is you're fully accepted. Well, then he moves on to the second point after sort of pulling that Titus 3-7 verse out, again, without giving us the full context, and says, hey, you're fully accepted. Why? Well, because you're fully forgiven. Um, now, what I want us to listen for, and this is one of the points we always listen for within these sermon reviews, is the gospel being preached. A key point of the gospel is that we are in desperate need of a Savior because of our rebellion and sin against God. So if we only talk about, you know, you're fully accepted, you're fully loved, you're fully forgiven, but don't discuss 
why that's important, why that's necessary. We're really missing a key component here. Um, so listen for that as we go through, because there's going to be a lot of single verses used. What we want to try to find out is write them down. And especially if you find yourself in a congregation where this happens, where there's just single verses shot out over and over and over again, you want to write those down so that you can later go back and say, are these being used in, in, the, in the faithful context of where they're at in scripture? And secondly, you know, you're trying to listen for, um, it is, is the gospel being preached through this? Like not just recon, you know, forgiveness and acceptance, but do we explain why that's important to people? So let's, let's keep going. Everything. I've said, I've done every place that I've been. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Isn't it amazing how good the enemy is at making us feel that we're not accepted? I mean, you hear people say it all the time. You invite them to come and hang out, and they'll say, oh, man, I can't go down into the church. The roof might fall in. And like, what are they saying? They're saying, I don't belong there. I don't fit in there. I'm not accepted there. I've, I've done too much. I, I don't agree with that. Or what, right? and, and, and yet the Bible is telling us just the opposite, that we are completely accepted because we have been overwhelmingly forgiven. There is not some condemnation. There is no condemnation. Isaiah says, and yet. So that's important, right? He said there's no condemnation for people. They don't, they don't want to come because they don't think they're accepted, but they're accepted and forgiven because there's no condemnation. But he doesn't finish that sentence, right? Go to Romans chapter 8, and this is where it gets really hard because people give up on trying to follow along with the pastor if he's just verse, verse, verse. They just give up trying to follow because there's too much. And then because of that, and I don't, I don't know if it's purposeful or not, but because of that, they're not catching the full context. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Therefore there is no condemnation. And that's where he's, he read the full verse, but that's where he stops when he's talking about people don't want to come here because they don't feel they're accepted. Well, they are accepted because there's no condemnation. Well, there's no condemnation for what? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an important distinction. It's not that just you're not under condemnation anymore because of Jesus. It's that you're, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those that follow him. That's an incredibly important distinction to make in, when using that verse. I am the God who forgives your sins. And I've shared with you before, the word sins means it's a picture word. And it means to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye. And so God is the one who forgives us for our screw-ups, for our wrong decisions and wrong mindsets. Ephesians says, for the blood of Christ, we are set free. That is, our sins are forgiven. How great is God's grace. Psalm 102 says, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And it's so important that he uses east and west, right? Because north and south, they touch one another. If you walk across the globe, you can walk north until you overcome the pole, and then you go south. But east and west never touch. That's how forgiven you are. As if you and I are willing to humble ourselves enough to put on the suit, then we are completely forgiven. And we uh, are accepted not only because we are forgiven, but we are eternally loved. There's nothing we can do to keep God from loving us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter. And one of the things it says is it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody who does keep records of wrongs? You know, Stephanie and I have been married 
for a long time, 33 years, right? 33 years. And she is incredible at not keeping records of wrongs. She rarely brings up the past other than driving. She, she struggles there. Um, I'm not so good at that, right? I, 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 I keep track of what she's done wrong over the 33 years in case I need it. Well, that, that's not what God does. God completely takes it away as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. I'm accepted. Why? Because I have been completely forgiven and I am eternally loved. There's nothing I can do to keep God from loving me. Jeremiah says, long ago the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, an unfailing love. I have drawn you to myself. So when we put on this suit, we are totally accepted and we are extremely valuable. Now, to be fair... He is sort of trying to make this co this correlation between putting on the suit, which he is sort of connecting to being saved, and these things falling in line after one puts on the suit. I don't think that's incredibly clear. I do want to give him credit for where credit is due, though. He is trying to make that distinction by saying that when you put on the suit, right, when you become saved, you're fully accepted, you're fully forgiven, and you are eternally loved. So he is making that like that connection, but in a very loose way, this, um, just, I just don't, I don't, I want to make sure that I'm very clear that I'm not saying he's not making that connection at all. I just think it could be clearer in regards to sort of the, the, the picture he's trying to put together that when you put on the suit, then you be, you know, that's you putting on Christ, you becoming a Christian, and then these things happening for you. So he, he is saying it, but this is where, like, this sermon's a little, I'm like, ah, like, it's not incredibly clear, but technically he's saying he's making that connection, but let's keep going. Again, we live in a world that's always trying to tell us just the opposite, right? I mean, you didn't go to the right school, you don't live in the right neighborhood, you, you don't have the right amount in your bank account, you don't work at the right place, you don't wear the right kind, I mean, you, I mean you're, you're just not that valuable. Now, that influencer on Instagram or on TikTok, now they're valuable, but, but not you. And yet Luke chapter 12 says, look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And this is Jesus talking, by the way. And you're far more valuable to him than any birds. And if you read the whole chapter, he uses a lot of different illustrations to basically say the same thing. Look at what God does for these and yet you are so much more valuable than any of them. You, you and I don't just have a little value or some value. We are extremely valued. And the Bible tells us, first of all, and I put, again, put it in your outline, we're extremely valued. Why? Because I was sacrificially purchased. God sacrificed for me. Did you know you were purchased? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, for God bought you with a high price so that God could be in relationship with you and me. I mean, that's what he desires. He wants us to, to be reconciled, this new identity, to know him and for him to know us. And for that to happen, he had to purchase us. And what was the price? Well, the very familiar scripture, John 3, 16 says, for God loved the world so much that he did what? He gave his one and only son. 
so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The cross was the price that he paid so that we could be in relationship with him. That's how valuable you are. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, what's the most valuable gift Steph's given me over our, uh, our, our time together at Christmas? And I was thinking about, you know, things that we got one another when we didn't have anything or when we were sick or just all those things. And I thought, you know, the most valuable thing that Steph has ever given me at Christmas is this watch. And this watch is a nice watch. It's an expensive watch. She gave it to me, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, something like that. But it's not the, the best gift she's ever given me because of how expensive the watch is. It's because of what she sacrificed in order to be able to get it. You know, Steph is the one that kind of leads out in our financial life. You know, because I'm the kind of person... Have you ever go to the mall and you see people standing in the middle trying to sell you cream for your face to make you 20 years younger or soles for your shoes to make you feel better? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm the reason they're there. <laughs> I, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to get talked into buying those soles for my shoes. That I, Stephanie can just walk on by. So she kind of leads out in that area. So... She sacrificed for a whole year so that she could pay cash for this watch. And so every time I look at it, I'm reminded not of the value of the watch. I'm reminded of the value I have in her life because of the sacrifices she made. And that doesn't come anywhere near the price that God paid for you. That's how valuable you and I are to him. So we are valuable because he sacrificially purchased us. But we're also valuable because I am marvelously created. I mean, have you ever got up in the morning, looked into the mirror and said, Ooh, doggies, I'm marvelous. Man, look at that. And yet, that's exactly what David says in Psalm 139. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. You are marvelous because you have incredible value because God intentionally. All right, so just to take sort of a, a, a sort of a break in here, there's a lot of points being made. Um, there's a lot of verses being used. And it, I would say it would be near impossible for us as a congregant to sit down, like, like I mentioned before, write them down, go home, check the context of them. And this is where the task becomes so daunting that um, you you just give up. You don't even want to do it. You're just like, yeah, I'm just going to assume that what he's saying is accurate. I'm just going to assume that all these verses that he's using are being used within the context they're supposed to be. I'm not even going to look at it. Um, I would encourage you to, to kind of get past that, to try to find the time to do that because it is incredibly important. I'm not saying that he's using them incorrectly. I'm just saying that there should be a practice in us that says that when we hear preaching in which a lot of verses are thrown at us, our first reaction is to say, we need to check these later. Like it's, it is that important, right? So as I've said before, this isn't just about potential church or Troy preaching. Like this is, he's just an, a, a type of, 
like of like a person that does this. So this isn't about how good or bad he is or what he's doing here. It's saying that, hey, when we see this type of thing, then we need to react in this type of way. So when we see verses thrown out, like single verses, it's great to say, look, I know this is going to take some time to do, but we need to get in the practice of saying, is this the proper context these are being used in? Because the first question we need to ask as believers listening to a sermon is, is the scripture being used correctly here or it is being manipulated in order to make me believe things that it doesn't typically say? Um, we see that a lot in these sermon reviews. We see this a lot in just like sermon clips that we see online. Um, there was a, a recent video that I did with a couple guys on our Tuesday night live stream uh, about an Andy Stanley clip, which in, in which Andy Stanley used a text in totally incorrectly to make it say something that it didn't say, but that's be, he was able to do that because he only used two verses of the letter that he was reading out of. And because they were isolated, it was very easy to do for the congregation to be like, oh, that must be what it means, even though within the full context of the letter, that's not what those verses meant, which is why I want us to really think about this when we hear single verses and say, is are, are these verses being used correctly? Because that's very important. Um, Let's go ahead and keep going through there. Hopefully you've been writing these down so far. He's talked about when we put on the suit, we are fully accepted. We are fully forgiven. We are eternally loved uh, because uh, we are very valuable. We're valuable because we were purchased and we were marvelously created. So he's working through that when we're believers, these things are true of us, even though technically um, like the valuable part, the marvelously created part um are even for those outside of the faith. So I think that distinction isn't being made very well. But um, the idea here is he's trying to work through, I think at the core of it, Troy's trying to remind Christians, because that seems to be who he's trying to talk to in this uh, in this sermon, trying to remind Christians of who they are in Jesus. He's just not saying it in that way. But let's keep going. Created you. You are you. You're not a cheap copy, right? I'm not a cheap copy of Dr. Rick Warren. I'm not a copy of Joel Osteen or even Chachi, right? Scott Baio. I'm me. And I am valuable as me. Troy, you know, at Trunk or Treat, which was an incredible event, by the way. We had like eight to 10,000 people. We gave away a lot of candy. Thanks for everybody that was a part of that. But Steph and I decorate, or dressed up as Mr. Well, Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus. And every once in a while, we'd have, I'd have some of these little kids come up to me and they'd kind of cross their arms and say, I know you're not the real Santa. <laughs> you're just pretend. It kind of hurt my feelings. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, man, I, I'm sweating to death in this thing. And, but, you know, we can do the same things when it, when it comes to our relationship with God. We can pretend to be something that we're not. We can pretend in hopes that if we can fake it, then we'll have value. When God says, you are incredibly valuable because he created you. And he created you on purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. And a masterpiece is created for greatness. 
See, Jesus gave his life and the Father gave his son. That's how valuable you are. So next time somebody tries to convince you that you don't have enough, know enough, aren't enough, uh-uh, God says, I am extremely valuable. He was willing to give that which was most precious because of his desire to have a relationship with me. See, we keep making this point, but I, uh, one of the things that I'll try to get into it longer in this video that I kind of work through these texts a little bit, but the idea here, like we're missing an opportunity um, to really pull out the Imago Dei, this idea that you are made in the image of God and therefore you have worth and value. Why? Well, because you are made in his image. Um, and we're not really touching on that. It's just you're valuable because, you know, he made you, which really isn't much different than what you're going to hear from, you know, secular humanists. I mean, obviously secular humanists aren't going to say God made you, but they are going to say you're valuable without giving some sort of tangible why. And so when we're saying you're valuable because he made you, well, yes, that's true. But there's like this deeper theology underneath that of you are valuable because you, you bear the image of the creator of the universe. He made you, you, you have value and worth because you are, you, you bear his image and that means something. Um, and again, I don't know if we're not getting into that because he doesn't want to get into that or just because there's so much stuff here that he's got to work through. He just eliminates that. But there is a deeper thing here. And I think as pastors, when we preach through text or preach through these topics that we have to, in our head, really say, okay, well, what does, what does the world say about this topic and what makes it distinguishably different from uh, like Christianity? What, what is the claim of Christians that is different than the claim of the world? And here it's not that you're just valuable because the world's going to tell you you're valuable, but why are you valuable? Well, the distinctive difference is because you have been made in the image of God. You bear his image and what that means and really working through why that, what the implications of that, not only within, I mean, you have the image of that of, of you know, why Christians are against uh, abortion. You have that why Christians are uh, for uh, taking care of the poor. Well, you have why, you know, why is there value in every human being? Well, that's because we believe as believers that we bear the image of God and therefore there is worth and value in all people and we we, we operate in the world like that. So I just think we, we may be missing a little bit of that point there, but um, again, he's got a lot that he's working through and that maybe is why we haven't done that. Um, but that being said, let's, let's keep going. Me, as imperfect as I might be, he still loves me in that way. So if we put on the suit, we're completely acceptable in this new identity. We are extremely valuable. And lastly, you are totally capable. That's important. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11, now the man Jeroboam was capable. Capable, what's that mean? Capable of what? Well, it says Solomon noticed that the young man, why? Because he was getting things done. The fact that he could get things done made him capable. Well, what was he getting done? His destiny, his purpose. Now, I just want to be totally transparent here. Whenever we skip into this destiny and purpose thing, these are just like trigger words for prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that's what potential church is. I'm not saying that's what Troy is. I'm just saying that whenever you start talking about destiny and purpose, you have to understand that that 
you're you're really reading that into the scriptures. Whenever you start saying everyone has a very specific destiny and a very specific purpose, and if you're talking outside of the purpose of the believer to you know share the gospel of Christ with those around them, if you're talking about outside of that sphere um, of their gift set that the Spirit gives them, then I think you're really really stretching this idea of purpose and destiny. But what you're going to hear. In every prosperity gospel or every uh, prosperity gospel light church is this, you need to walk into your destiny. You need to fulfill your potential. But you don't have any verses that specifically say this. Like we do see, right, in Titus, for example, Paul telling Titus that, you know, there are these good works that you're supposed to walk in, you know, but these good works are what come from this change in you brought in by the Holy Spirit to do these good works that have been laid out for you by God to do. But these aren't there's an entirely different uh, mindset between doing that, like what we see with, you know, your call to good works versus your destiny and your purpose and pursue that. Like we're really stretching the scriptures whenever we start talking about destiny and purpose. That being said, I'm going to let him finish his point. His greatness. You are capable of what? Greatness. Say, ah, oh, Troy, you don't, no, no, no. I know that you are capable of greatness because the one who spoke the world is capable of greatness. He's given you everything you need in order to succeed. Right? He says, I am totally capable of greatness because I'm unequivocally strengthened. God strengthens us. Remember the familiar passage, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13? For I can do everything. Well, what's that mean? Everything through Christ who gives me what? Strength. Well, what kind of strength does God give us? Okay, so let, let's let's do that real quick, right? So first, uh, well, actually, no, I don't have time. Go look at that verse, right? This is why we write these verses down, because there is context in that verse. That verse gets misused all the time. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Yeah, well, Paul is talking about in 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 much or in little, right? In plenty or in not having anything. No matter what my situation is, Christ strengthens me. This is we're talking about a man that in time there's there's times of shipwreck, times of beating, times of having no one around him, having been abandoned by all people. Like like we really need to have the context of that verse. And in the context, what he's saying is regardless of everyone is here for me or if no one is here, Christ strengthens me. Whether I have a, every need met or I have none of my needs met, it doesn't matter. But we always use this verse in some sort of like, I can do everything. Yeah, every, probably the, what we, the, the leaning we have Paul talking about here is that I can do everything in Christ even when I have nothing. Right? But we never use it that way. We always want to use it as this verse of like, I can do all things in Christ's strength. Yeah, but most of the time that's going to mean in the most mundane parts of your life or in the worst parts of the day, right? Not in like, I have power to fulfill my destiny because I am truly capable. You're capable through Christ. And most of the time that capability is going to be most shown when you're the weakest. We, we misuse that verse all the time, but anyway, let's keep going. Gives us the strength to persevere. So the only thing that can keep you from your destiny, the only thing that can keep you from your purpose or not experiencing your greatness or not accomplishing that of significance, the only thing 
Nothing, a boss can't, an environment can't, a culture can't. The only thing that can keep us from who God has created us to be is if we quit, if we don't give up, it's if we don't persevere. God gives us the strength to persevere, therefore making us capable of greatness. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity. Those all come from the enemy. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I have enough. I don't know if I can do enough. I don't know if I, right? All these fears and all those things that cause us to back up instead of move forward, those all come from the enemy. No, no. He's given us a spirit of what? Power. The Greek word there is the word that we get the word dynamite from. The power to do what? Persevere. When I look back on any success I've had in my life, it's not because of my talent. It's because I stayed when others left. I mean, the best things in my life are the outcome of perseverance. You know, when I met Steph for the very first time, I was like, wow, she's awesome. It took a while to convince her that I was awesome. All right? But I'm glad I persevered. When Steph and I started a church in Arkansas years ago, the only reason that church is still there today, they're meeting right now, the only reason is because we didn't give up. You realize a lot of churches start, but over 50% of the churches that start stop by the fourth year. They just give up. Why? Because it's hard. It's difficult. Businesses are the same way. Businesses start, but many of them never finish. Why? Because it's tough. Relationships are tough. Life can be difficult, but God gives us the strength so as to persevere so that we can cross the finish line into our destiny, into our purpose, into our greatness. I just wanted you to make the distinction, right? So some of this sounds really appealing, right? God gives us the strength to persevere. Check. That is entirely true, right? I mean, we, we see that in Paul's letters. A lot of Paul's letters is you can see that he perseveres only by the strength uh, in him given by the Spirit, right? This knowledge of who Jesus is to keep pushing forward regardless of what comes. The second half of this, though, we don't see at all. Like, we never hear the apostles or Paul talking about, like, well, you know, the Spirit gave me perseverance to press through to my destiny. We don't have those. Like, everything that he perseveres through is for the glory of the kingdom of God, right? He goes in jail. What's he say? Well, hey, this is working for the benefit because the people in here are hearing about Jesus, right? So if I'm outside of the jail, great, because I can preach the gospel. If if I'm inside the jail, great, because I can preach the gospel, right? He's not talking about pursuing like, oh no, I'm locked out from my destiny because I'm in jail. He just goes, well, you know, whatever. I'm in jail, so now these people get to hear about Jesus. So like this is like this is where it sounds really good but we're adding on the persevere to get to your destiny. No, you're ber- you're persevering for the prize at the end, which is which is Christ. That's why you're able to persevere. You're giving you're 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 given perseverance through the spirit to persevere to Christ. Not for your destiny. Right? Yes, you've been given gifts by the spirit. Yes, you've been put in certain places for certain reasons. Maybe you know those, maybe you don't. But all of it's for the glory of the kingdom of God, not for your greatness. Never for your greatness. Absolutely zero times for your greatness. What is perseverance? What does it mean to persevere? 
Well, we often get focused on the finish line, don't we? And it just seems overwhelming. I mean, I'm in a 10-mile race, and I've only accomplished, you know, a mile. Like, there's no way I can go nine more miles. No, that's not perseverance. Perseverance doesn't focus on the finish line. Perseverance is simply, I'm going to take one more step. Because anybody can do that. Anybody can take one more step. I'm not going to give up today. I may give up tomorrow, but I'll tell you what, I'm not going to give up today. That's what perseverance is. And the great thing about perseverance is any of us can do it because God gives us the strength to make us capable for the greatness in which he created us. You are capable of extraordinary things. You say, Troy, you don't know me. No, I do not know you, but I know the God who created you, and I know what he said about you. And he has said that you are a masterpiece created on purpose to do something of significance. And it may seem a long way away today, but I'm telling you, if you will persevere and not give up, there will be that day when you cross that finish line into your destiny and hear him say, well done, my good and what? Faithful, persevering servant. So there's the distinction I want to make. So he does get to this point where he says like, hey, there's going to be one day you, you cross into your destiny in which you stand before and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That has not been the picture he's painted up to that point. It's always been about destiny and purpose. And now he loosely connects your destiny being whenever you stand before God and he says, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's a very, like, that's very gray, very cloudy, not at all clear about what he means by destiny then. Because destiny and purpose in a lot of people's minds mean one thing about, you know, their goals, their things, the things, even if they're going to put it in some sort of religious language where they say, well, God has purposed me for this thing. Like, so when we're talking about destiny and purpose, we need to very much, especially in this sense, make the distinction between, is he talking about like going into glory, like being faithful servant of Jesus Christ in, in whatever situation you're in and then standing before God? Or is he talking about destiny and purpose being like a here now thing, doing that thing well, like my big destiny, my big purpose, as far as opening a business or becoming this or that thing, and then standing before God, like what is, it's just very unclear. I'm totally capable for greatness because I am uniquely destined for success. Destiny. Unique word. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, it says, remember, and anytime I read remember, I'm reminded that I tend to forget. He wouldn't say remember if we didn't forget. What is it we forget? That the Lord your God, he is the one who gives you the power to be successful. Okay, here's the important thing, too, I want you to look at just as a learning opportunity. There it says Deuteronomy 8, chapter 18a. Anytime you see this, the way that texts are broken down, especially if you're studying the Bible, is if you're going to break the verses down, usually it's just an A, B. You usually don't go above that, but it's usually like you're breaking the verses up. So this is the first half. So what this tells us is there's actually something after this. And it doesn't just stop at remember that the Lord your God, he is the one who gives you power to be successful. That is, first of all, not the same success that we typically think of in an American context. But secondly, there's something after that, which is probably incredibly important. Again, the reason you should write these down and go back and look later. So when we do, if we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 18, when we get back to that, talking about our success and our capability, we need to read not only the full 
the full verse of 18, but the verses around it to see what he's what what is being referenced here about success and what's going on in the context. Because what we're going to often find is that that's not the same sort of success that we're talking about here in this sermon versus what's being talked about in Deuteronomy. And this is why it's important to note sort of those little cues where it's just he's just using half the verse. He's being honest about it, but he's only using half the verse. And then we need to write that down. And this is why. I know so far we've probably got you know more than a dozen verses that we're going to have to go back and look at if we're being faithful in doing this. But that's the reason we want to be faithful in doing this is so that we say, okay, is Troy using these in the appropriate way they're supposed to be used in? I cannot overstress how important that is. Let's keep going. In other words, my success is dependent upon my willingness to follow him. My destiny is tied to him. Job chapter 22 says, you will succeed in whatever you choose to do. The light will shine in the road ahead of you. I remember years ago, I was at a church conference. that We had started our church in Paragould a few years. You know, we had a few hundred people. And I was at a conference with... Um, our executive pastor, who was like a bivocational, you know, and we wanted to get home early, lived in Arkansas, we were in Jacksonville, Florida, and so we were flying standby. We're sitting there, you know, in the waiting room, and I look over, and I see Dr. Adrian Rogers is flying standby as well. Now, you may not know who Dr. Adrian Rogers is, but here's a picture of him, and here's the church that he led at the time called Bellevue Baptist Church. It's just a small church, okay? Um, that church was bigger than the town I lived in at the time. It was only 90 miles away in Memphis, Tennessee. And so we would, we would go there and watch their Christmas presentations and everything. And now he's flying standby and I'm flying standby. So I look at the pastor who's with me and I say, this is destiny. He's flying standby, I'm flying standby, so God's going to have us sit together so that he can tell me how to be an incredible pastor. Don't you wish you were me? This is awesome. I mean, God must have great things in store for me that he's going to allow me to sit next to Dr. Adrian Rogers for the whole flight to hear about how to be a great dad and husband and pastor. So I was so excited. I just couldn't wait to board the plane. And you know, back in the day, so we had our paper tickets and I, I got my ticket, and uh, Dr. Rogers got on before me. And he's a pretty tall guy, so I could see where he went, and I could see where he sat. And as I get on the plane, you know, I'm looking at my ticket, and I'm looking where Dr. Rogers is sitting, because, you know, i am got to make sure i got places for my bag so I can sit beside him. And I'm looking at my ticket, and I'm looking where Dr. Rogers is sitting, and I'm looking at my ticket, and I'm looking where Dr. Rogers is sitting, and I'm looking at my ticket, and I started to have to look behind me to see where Dr. Rogers was sitting. I, I, I didn't sit next to Dr. Rogers. Instead, I sat on the very last seat of the plane next to the bathrooms. Middle seat. I was ticked off at God. I mean, I could see the idiot in my seat next to Dr. Adrian Rogers. God, what's up here? This is not fair, and I'm just kind of pouting, you know, got my head down. And you know how God is. He, he doesn't leave us alone. And it's kind of like he's like, uh, hey, you know, Troy, you were just at that conference about sharing Jesus. Why don't you tell the people beside you about me? Because I don't want to, God. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be up there next to Dr. Adrian Rogers. Somebody else is supposed to, you know, and I'm just sitting and 
you know, he never leaves you alone. So finally, I'm like, God, they're not even paying attention. What am I going to do? So I came up with this plan. You know, because I'm a pretty big guy. I'm sitting in the middle seat, and we're all packed in there. I thought, I'm just going to kick real hard. And whichever person looks up, I'll tell about Jesus, okay? <laughs> so I kick real hard, and evidently I kick the lady beside me. She looks up. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Did I kick you? You know, that's the best way to share your faith. Start by lying, okay? <laughs> and so <laughs> i oh, you know. So I start to talk to her. And she's open, right? She, she talks to me. She talks to me about her life. She's not a Christ follower. And, and uh, she tells me about some of the challenges she's going through. I actually get the opportunity to tell her about Jesus. And after a couple hours of us talking the whole trip and me sharing scripture and everything with her, as the plane is getting ready to land there in Memphis, Tennessee, she kneels down and asks Jesus into her heart. Well, hold it, hold it, hold it. She really didn't, okay? But wouldn't that be a great story if it had happened? I mean, my book would already be out if that would have happened. I mean, that's such a pastor story. <laughs> I'm hoping she's trusted Christ since then, okay? But, but I will tell you what did happen. That is the reason I haven't forgotten. It's because we're getting off the plane, and I'm thinking about what's happened. And it's like God... He spoke to my heart. It's the best way I know how to say it. And he's like, you know what, Troy? You flew standby, and Dr. Adrian Rogers, the pastor of this giant Bellevue Baptist Church, flew standby. I could have had him sit next to her and tell her about me, but I chose you, Troy, because you are valuable. And the same thing is true for every single one of us. You are capable, right? Because you are valuable. Now, here's one thing, and this is just an observation. I just want to make this observation. I don't know if this is true. Again, this is what makes it an observation. It seems that Troy has a, like, this, this issue with knowing who he is, or at least he used to have this issue of knowing who he is. I mean, we've seen that at the beginning of the sermon. Like, he just, if something goes wrong, he's thinking that maybe he needs to copy a different pastor, right? Um, we see this on the plane. Like, hey, you're valuable, you're just as valuable as Adrian Rogers. Like, he just seems to have this, like, I'm not important enough issue. And even if that's not the case, there's lots of people that have that issue. There's lots of people... Um, pastors that have that, well, I need to be this, that, or the other thing. And, and the bad part about that is they operate out of that. Like this whole sermon is operated out of the idea of trying to remind, like you are valuable. You're, you're worth it. Like you, you know, you matter. Um, and in so doing, we we're really missing, um, missing the reality that like, um, this identity in Christ that we could really be pushing on, right? Saying that, you know, again, going back to the, the first scripture he used in Corinthians, uh, first Corinthians, uh, where was this at? First Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 or second Corinthians five, uh, 17, um, of this reality that, you know, there has been this transfer of Jesus takes your sin and gives you his righteousness, and really walking through what that means for the believer. We don't have to go through all of these different verses to do that. We could have easily just stayed in that section and really discuss, like, if you don't feel like you're enough, well, here's the reality, like, you're not. Jesus is, though. And 
And in so doing, he transfers his righteousness to us by dying on the cross. Um, and so when we believe in him and we follow him, there's this transfer that happens in which uh, we are now made right before God. So when God sees us, he sees Jesus's righteousness. So it's not about your doing. It's not about um, your status. It's not about how many people know you or don't know you. It's not about how big or little your church is. It's not about how many people you um, know you or don't know you. It's, it's the reality that you can rest in your identity in Christ, his righteousness, not yours. And then you operate out of that. But we're not like, we're, we've not really worked through that. We've talked about uh, up to this point, you know, the fact that you're accepted because we don't, you know, his whole point is you don't feel accepted. You're forgiven because you don't feel forgiven. Uh, you're eternally loved because you don't feel loved. You're valuable even though you don't feel valuable. Well, you were purchased and you were marvelously created and you're capable even though you don't feel capable. So he, he's, he's, touching on all of these things that he feels like the congregation um, maybe don't feel as if they, you know, are capable or are loved. I think some of this is coming out of his subconscious as well. But this idea that like, hey, you're not these things, like you don't feel like these things, but the Bible tells you you are these things. You are capable. You are valuable. You are loved. You are forgiven. Um, but we're, we're sort of missing the, like the why. Well, yeah, he does touch on the fact that you were purchased. Yes. But like, why, why were you purchased? It wasn't just because you were valuable. Um, you were purchased because the, you, we were in rebellion and to be reconciled. Again, going back to that first passage, in order to be reconciled to God. Not because you are extremely valuable. There is a lot of reality in you know, the Imago Dei and having value and worth. But the reality is that we needed to be reconciled with our creator because we didn't have a relationship with him. Again, all of that is covered in that first 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that section we talked about, 16 through 20-something. Like, we could have really dug into that. So I just want to demonstrate, like, like we're, we're sort of missing the overall point here. But let, let's finish up on this sermon. Because you have a unique destiny. That's exactly what the scripture says in 1 Peter. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling. I love what it says in Acts about David. It says he served God's purposes for his generation, and then he went on to be with the Lord. See, here's the question. The question is, are we willing to put on the suit? And you know the hardest thing about putting on the suit? Is often before we can put on the suit, we have to take off what we have on. And that takes humility. We have to admit that what we have been wearing isn't who we really are. We've been, and, and see, the reason it's <laughs> Cue the music. so difficult to take it off is because once you take off what you have on, who you really are is revealed. You know, back in the day, we used to wear suits and ties to church all the time. And then you'd see somebody that you went to church with at Walmart and you wouldn't even recognize them because it hid what was underneath. The Bible tells us that there are so many people who will never experience this new identity. They'll never know what it's like to truly be in Christ because they're just not willing to humble themselves enough to take off their religion, to take off their effort, to take off their pride and say, this is who I really am. To admit their sin. We didn't even, like, we're talking about religious people, but we're not talking about the unbelievers. He didn't say anything about admitting to sin, repenting from sin. Like, that's not even here. 
And I know that I was created for so much more. And so as we start this holiday season, I thought that it'd be pretty cool to give you an opportunity to put the suit on today, to climb into the sleigh, to humble yourself and become who Jesus had in mind when he knit you together in your mother's womb. So if you would bow your head, whether you're here in the auditorium or you're watching online or on television, are you ready to take off that which is hidden who you really are and to put on who God has created you to be? So I'm going to pray for us because Humility always takes courage. That's the, the Bible says pride comes before what? Destruction, fall, the unwillingness to admit that we're not good enough. We can't do enough. And so I'm going to pray for us that God will give us the courage. And at the end of the prayer, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to respond, to put on the suit, to join me here at the front. You say, well, Trey, why are you asking me to get out of my seat, to get uncomfortable? Because there's a humbling aspect to stepping out. Jesus said that if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. That desperateness for a new identity, that hunger to know Christ, not to be perfect, not to have it all figured out, not to know all the answers. All you have to desire is to put on the suit, is to be who God created you to be, acceptable, forgiven, loved, capable. And so, Father, I pray that you give us the courage to be humble. And whether you're here on the floor or there in the balcony, we're not going to wait a long time. Because this is between you and God. He's already nudged your heart. He's already tapped you on the shoulder. You know he's speaking to you. The question is just, do you have the courage to humble yourself enough to take off and to put on the suit? And so as soon as I say amen, don't wait to see what someone else is going to do or what's going to happen. I mean, as soon as your legs are straightening out, just step out, and God will do the rest. And at the end of this chorus, we're going to do what the Scripture says. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, we're just going to pray. Because that's what the Bible says. And He, He does all of the rest. So, Father, we ask that you would move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. All right. Okay, so let's go back to the main screen here. So that was the full sermon. Um, a couple things. So let's let's go through this, right? So one of the things that I think you noticed, or hopefully you noticed through this sermon, was that there was a lot of scripture used. I've said this throughout the sermon, uh, and so I want to make sure I re-sort of uh, state this as clearly as possible, is that what we have is a lot of verses being used um, 
hold on real quick. A lot of verses being used um, that we definitely need to double check and say, are these verses used within the context of the scriptures that they're actually pulled from? So right now um, we have, let me see, there's at least uh, over a dozen scriptures that we would have to go back and double check to make sure um, that they were within the context. And what I would encourage you to do is to do that. Um, if uh, you want to help in doing that, there'll be a link in the description below or a card on the screen here shortly where I actually walk through these texts and we look at that and say, are these used correctly? You can view that if you'd like. If not, you know, that's just a help to you that I'm providing. Um, the three things we're looking at that we always look at. One, did he read scripture? He read a lot of scripture, yes, but that doesn't mean that we actually read scripture. Whenever we're asking the question, did we read scripture, what we're looking for is did we read it within the context that those verses were used in? Because what you're going to see in the video where we walk through the scriptures he used, that a lot of these are not used within the full context of which they're actually like it changed. The meaning of these verses changes when you read them in the context that they're actually written in versus just pulling them out for the points that are being made. Um, so yes, we read scripture, but no, we didn't actually read scripture, if that makes sense. Secondly, did we use them within context and the culture that they were used in in order to bring out the application um, that was being sort of put forth within the sermon? I would say again, no, because when you, when you only used verses to make your point, then you're not pulling out the context and the culture to make the application correctly. There is, there's, there's, it's one thing to read an entire section of scripture within context and then use cross references in order to show that that's like a, a point throughout scripture is an entirely different thing to have a dozen one verse scriptures to make your points. Um, that there are two ways to do that. One's correct and one is problematic at best. Lastly, did we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? We did not. We talked a lot about the, the, this being forgiven, being accepted, being loved, but we didn't explain why that's important. In fact, the closest we got was him talking to religious people um, that thought that their, their good deeds were good enough to get them in. We didn't touch at all on the reality of us living in rebellion toward God at all within, we think, you know, the, the reality of our sin separating us from a holy God. We got close in that first scripture we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but we didn't read it within context. We don't even realize that we need to be reconciled to God. Well, why would you need to be reconciled to God? Because you're not currently reconciled. You have a broken relationship and that reconciliation is necessary, but we didn't read all those entire verses. And because we didn't read all those verses, we're missing out on the full breadth and weight of the gospel that we need to be reconciled to God through Christ. So yes, as you know, believing in Jesus means we're forgiven, but forgiven for what? Well, we're forgiven for our rebellion, right? Sometimes our rebellion is arrogance. Sometimes it's straight up flipping the bird to God. Like there's lots of different ways rebellion shows, and we need to be very clear in that, that the reason we're forgiven is because we've been reconciled. And the reason we need reconciliation is because we are in rebellion and we have a broken relationship with him. So all in all, um, uh, my wife actually uh, made a good point when I was telling her about this sermon. I think if a younger pastor was preaching this that wasn't um, that trained in scripture, like if it was just somebody that was like new and they were trying to, you know, learn, you know, we were trying to figure out if they were, you know, called to the pastorate, I would have a lot more grace in them doing this because maybe they just don't know. 
Um, I don't know how long Troy's been in ministry. He made it sound like he'd been in ministry a long time. I have a lot less grace for someone that's been in ministry a long time to preach this way um, because they should at this point know better, right? There's a difference between being in ministry a decade and understanding that there, you know, the scripture should be used in context and there should be this exegetical work done in it. And it's a different thing of being new to ministry, not knowing that, being trained to be a minister and having to work through the understanding that you need to divide the word rightly. Um, so all in all, I don't, uh, again, not a diss on Troy, not a, is he the worst or is he the best, but the concern I have is that we used a lot of scripture, a lot of it out of context. We didn't preach the gospel and we put a bunch of proof text forward that in some respects, the points he made are true, but we don't fully work them out so that those that are listening understand the context fully as pastors. Let me say this as I end this review as pastors, we have to be incredibly diligent in ensuring that those that we're speaking to understand what we're saying and that what we're saying is based on the scriptures, not proof text of the scriptures, but the scriptures so that when we say, go, go to this passage and see that this is true, we can have confidence in pointing them to that passage because we know it's true. Because when they go there, what they're going to see is the contextual working out of what we've already said. It has nothing to do with what we, what we say. Our words mean nothing apart from Scripture, and we need to understand that. So hopefully this was helpful. If it was, make sure you leave a like. Make sure you comment. Make sure you share. And if you're not subscribed, why not? Like, why are you not subscribed yet? Hit that button and then you'll be notified next week whenever we release another video. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.